I know this has been a long introduction to the book of Ephesians that hasn't really even dealt with the book of Ephesians yet. My, my commitment is that we will see the beginning of Ephesians today, just barely. Um, but Acts chapter 20, and also you might want to look in the back of your Bible for a map. If the back of your Bible has a map of Paul's missionary journeys, or specifically Paul's third missionary journey, it's not vital, but it might be helpful for you to just kind of visualize a couple of things, all right? Acts chapter 20, and we'll start reading at verse 16. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over, which, over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that he, they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him onto the ship. Now, 
We've already read in Acts 18 how Paul brought the gospel to the city of Ephesus and started the church there. And then he, he left and he continued on to Jerusalem with the promise that he would return if he could. And he did return in Acts chapter 19 and he ministered in Ephesus for a total of about three years. <clears throat> Acts 19, if you remember, includes stories of his teaching and of his miraculous healings and of the spiritual warfare and ultimately a, a, a city-wide riot aimed at his destruction. But remember, Acts is not designed to tell us absolutely everything that happened in those three years. It's evident from other places in Paul's letters that the time in Ephesus was even more eventful than we read about last week. He describes, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, how he, quote, fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, if that was being literal, it means maybe Paul was thrown into that amphitheater with a a death sentence and uh, faced wild animals. More likely, that is a a turn of phrase in the first century that just meant that there were, he was in danger of being torn apart by violent, rioting men. Either way, the possibility of Paul's demise at Ephesus was not an empty threat. This is what he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, and he's talking about his time there at Ephesus, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yea, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And so perhaps it's no surprise that after leaving the city at the conclusion of that riot, Paul didn't return. Now, if you've got one of those maps of his third missionary journey, you'll note that his path as he heads toward Jerusalem on that third journey takes him very close to the city of Ephesus. The apostles on that return trip to Jerusalem, and you can see in chapter 20 up in verse 5, he visits the city of Troas, which is uh, up on the western edge of Asia Minor, far north of Ephesus. But what he's doing is he's booking passage on ships, and he's kind of bouncing along that, that western edge of Asia Minor, and it would have been very natural for him, very easy for him to stop in Ephesus on this trip, but instead he bypasses it intentionally. He goes straight past Ephesus instead, taking a ship that's going to stop in the harbor called Miletus, about 60 miles overland from Ephesus. We're told in verse 16 of our text, this is because Paul cannot spend the time necessary to stop at Ephesus. That's either because the city was a danger to him, so it would delay his journey, or that even if he kept his visit quiet when he visited the disciples in Ephesus, they were going to cling to him so much that he would never get away. Um, I was joking with some folks a while back about the Midwestern goodbye, where it's you say goodbye and you inch toward the door and it takes hours to actually get out the door. Well, Paul thinks if he goes to Ephesus, it's going to delay him on this trip to Jerusalem. So instead, he lands about 60 miles away at Miletus, and he sends messengers to Ephesus 
and waits for the elders of the church to return with those messengers, a process which would probably take at least five days. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of time savings, right? What we know, though, is that the Holy Spirit has enlightened the the apostle to know certain things, and doubtless one of those insights was, Paul, don't stop at Ephesus. You don't have time for what would happen to you there. And yet Paul loves this church. He cannot pass on an opportunity to minister to that church by ministering to the pastors of that church. And and there were several pastors of that one church. You can see in verse 17, he calls the elders, plural, of the church singular. That's where we need to be. And my prayer is yesterday was, uh, you know, baby steps in that direction. But uh, the pastors of the church at Ephesus arrive at Miletus. And in this text, Paul opens his heart to them about his own work, and he encourages them in the work that the Lord has called them to. He warns them about the dangers that they'll face. He offers such a heartfelt goodbye that by the end of this meeting, look down at verses 37 and 38, they're all crying. They're, they're hugging him. They're clinging to his clothes. They're going onto the ship with him you know, because they're going to miss him so much. They know they'll never see him again. Now, I honestly did not plan things this way, but this study leading up to Ephesians offers us a chance at a timely message. I really wanted to preach the ordination charge yesterday, and uh, although I'm, I'm thankful we decided to have Jeff Short do it, because if that message wasn't for Andrew, it was uh, probably for me, but had I preached that charge yesterday, I easily could have used Acts chapter 20, because in this text we get an intensive, expressive, and impassioned declaration of the work to which pastors are called. Andrew needs to know what he's getting into. So look at the, the example of Paul, starting at verse 18. When they were come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia after what manner I've been with you at all seasons? Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. They were waiting to trap him. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the beginning of verse 19 as, as Paul saying, look how very humble I am, you've missed the point. He's saying, I am a servant. I have served the Lord. I am a, a slave, literally is what that word means, of the Lord. He served humbly in temptations and trials, and elders are going to be called to serve during trying times. He served humbly during plots against him he says and unfortunately elders have to face the scheming plots of adversaries and he also says he served in humility with many tears if you submit to the work of pastor don't for a minute moment assume that your emotions are going to escape unscathed you are going to be wrung out paul says in verse 9 he served with many or verse 19 he served with many tears he says in verse 31 that he spent three years, night and day, warning them with 
tears. And by the end of the sermon, in verses 37, in verse 37, all the elders are crying and hugging. Pastoral ministry is not something that comes with just a little bit of emotional baggage. You'll be pulling an emotional U-Haul for the rest of your life. It's going to tax emotions, and that proves to be a good thing. You can't declare the word of God with passion unless you are truly passionate about it. You won't logic and reason your way through pastoral counseling. You're going to find yourself facing and answering uh, questions from members of the congregation that, that you love and you're seeing the heartache that they're going through. At times you find yourself responsible for giving the loving yet blunt assessment that is biblically required of a pastor. For Paul, he's reminding these elders at Ephesus you know I was open with you. I've spent three years there. I've been open with you. I've been honest with you. Pastoral ministry requires biblical bravery because it will ultimately and inevitably lead to times where an elder has to stand on the word of God even when members of the congregation would prefer that he didn't. That phrase, I have kept back nothing, is literally, I did not shrink back about speaking what was profitable, what was useful, what was right. He uses the same phrase again in verse 27 when he says, I have not shunned to declare. I have not shrunk back from declaring all the counsel of God. Paul ministered with unrelenting honesty. He was honest both publicly and privately. Look at verse 20. He says he's done this publicly and from house to house. Now, while Paul didn't shy away from truth, he did make sure he was firmly grounded in truth before speaking. The truth is found in the Word of God. And as Paul gives these elders his own example, it's evident that their calling is to boldly declare the same word that Paul has declared. We heard yesterday as Andrew went through the qualifications of an elder that even above other church members, the one qualification that is specific to an elder is to be apt to teach, be an able and willing, uh, capable teacher of the word. Well, the pattern of Paul's ministry is found in the action words he uses in this text in regard to teaching the word. Just look at some of them. In verse 20, he showed, that means he's announced, uh, he's disclosed the message. Also in verse 20, he's taught, he has instructed them in the word. In verse 21, he's testified, that is, he's warned or witnessed. He uses that word again in verse 24 when he says he's testified the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 25, he uses the word preaching or proclaiming. In verse 27, he, he changes over to the word declare. He's declared all the counsel of God. He calls on the elders in verse 28 to Feed, that is a description of pastoral teaching, and we'll, we'll see that in a moment. In verse 31, he says he is warned. In verse 35, he says he is showed. Being a minister of the Lord's word is the calling of an elder, and it's to be a minister of the word both to those within the congregation and outside the congregation. Paul's example of ministry shows that he taught the church diligently. Remember, he rented out that 
that uh, lecture hall of, of the uh, Manturanus. And also, he taught the word to unbelievers by declaring in verse 21, to the Jews and the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So he sets out his example of his own life, and then he gives the expectations that he has for his own life. That It's easy to forget that we know how the book of Acts ends. We, we know this story and its conclusion. Paul, on the other hand, was living out this story without getting to read it, and he explains what he's anticipating for the future. He has unknown expectations in verse 22 behold i go bound in the spirit to jerusalem not knowing the things that shall befall me there now when paul says he's bound in the spirit there's some debate whether he means that his own heart his own spirit is set on going to jerusalem or that the holy spirit has constrained him to go to Jerusalem. And you can see, if you're reading the King James Version, spirits there is in lower case because the translators have their own idea. They think this is Paul's spirit, but I think the Holy Spirit's more likely. But either way, Paul's own spirit and the Holy Spirit don't have to be at odds with one another. I'm certain if we could get into the mind of the apostle who just called himself a slave of the Lord. He would tell us, my life's not my own. I'm doing what it is I think the Lord wants me to do. Since Brother Bowling isn't able to be with us this morning, I'll just quote what I've heard him say many times. And I really wish I had a good Brother Bowling impersonation I could do. I just can't pull it off. The future is none of your business. So Paul doesn't know with certainty what's going to happen, he says. But he does have some expectations. Like if the Jews in Ephesus, as he had just said, they laid in wait. If the Jews of Ephesus had been trying to kill him, what is he, what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem and is preaching the gospel of Jesus openly? Well, he describes that his expectations are also dangerous in verse 23 he said remember i don't know what awaits me but look at verse 23 save or accept that the holy spirit witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions abide me this is paul's way of saying everywhere i go the holy spirit is ensuring me that imprisonment and persecution is awaiting me i have every reason to expect that jerusalem is where that's going to happen and so i'm headed to jerusalem And he's right. That is where it's going to happen. There's a reason he's telling this to the elders at Ephesus. It isn't to complain about his own life. It's because if they follow his example, they can also have some dangerous expectations of their own. Listen, be, becoming a, a pastor, it might let you slap your name on a business card or, or add your name to a church sign, but it is with certainty putting a target on your back. Now, I recognize that I'm not painting a, a pretty picture there, so why would anybody do this? Why would anyone go down this path of being an elder if it just leads to tears and more tears and, and, and the unknown at best and, and the dangerous at worst? 
Well, in Paul's view, it's not just because he has these unknown expectations and dangerous expectations. He also has eternal expectations. Verse 24, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. You see that middle of ministry idea that that Jeff was talking about yesterday there. He intends to finish his course, to complete the path that the Lord has put him on. And his own personal comfort, he says, his own, the safety for his own life is not the motivating factor for the Apostle Paul. That is not what moves me. That is not what motivates me. Serving the Lord is what moves him. And the confidence of finding joy at the end of his life, no matter what brings on the end of that life, that's his goal. And church, if it is our own personal comfort and safety that is the motivating factor of our lives, that is going to stand in the way of serving the Lord. It isn't just the Apostle Paul. This is all of us. We have to question ourselves. What is the most important thing to me? What is it that motivates me? Too often we read these kinds of words where the Apostle says, well, I don't consider my own life uh, so precious that it has to be held on to. And we think he's talking about just his willingness to die for the cause of Christ. But it is the whole life of the Apostle Paul that he says is worth the sacrifice. No doubt there are some individuals who would muster like the momentary courage to die for the cause of the gospel. But what Paul's saying here is the calling is to have a willingness to have the lifelong burden of living for the cause of the gospel. That's the calling. As we know how this ends, we can say with certainty that the Apostle Paul succeeds in his goal of finishing the course. And I want you to know that the church at Ephesus will find out that he has succeeded in finishing his course. Because later on in Paul's final personal letter, Timothy, who he left at Ephesus in order to help lead the church, he writes this personal letter to Timothy in his very last letter that we have. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. What he's doing here is he's preparing them for his absence. There is a sense in which it is every elder's responsibility to prepare the church for the time that they're gone. As these elders who who dearly loved Paul, as they hear him say in verses 22 through 24, I don't know what the future holds, but I don't count my life so dear as to interfere with the gospel calling of Jesus Christ. What do you suppose is going through their minds as they hear that? I, I think it's fair to say that they were thinking, well, we might never see Paul again. And now in verses 25 through 27, he removes all doubt from their mind about whether or not this is their last encounter. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. 
Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Look, I know that you're not going to see me again. This is it. This is the final goodbye. And the reality of that is crushing to them. It's perhaps one of the most remarkable things to me about Acts chapter 20 is that for all of the warnings that we're about to read, all of the the teaching that Paul gives, that phrase, you'll see my face no more, is what is echoing in their minds at the end of all of it. You can look down at verse 38. They're clinging to him as he boards the ship, thinking about what he'd said earlier, that they're not going to see him again. Sorrowing and heartbroken over those words. Listen, if the Apostle Paul is the only source of security for these spiritual leaders at Ephesus, then this truly is a heartbreaking goodbye. If the recurring presence, if if Paul coming back to them over and over is like, if that's the glue that's holding this assembly together, then it's about to collapse as soon as that ship pulls out of the harbor. But listen, there is not one single church on earth that should be dependent on any of its pastors. The spiritual life of a church is based on the allegiance to Jesus Christ alone. So even as Paul is saying, you're not going to see me anymore, he also tells them, remember I've been with you for three years Teaching the kingdom of God in verse 27, I've not shunned to declare you to you all the counsel of God. Like, I'm leaving, but that's okay because I'm leaving with you everything that you need. And these pastors are going to be responsible now for leading the Lord's church and doing it without the direct oversight of this man whom they so loved. And that's okay, he says, because he spent three years And he didn't spend that three years just preaching about his pet doctrines. He didn't shrink back, literally. He didn't shun to declare from telling them all those things that were useful, even when what was useful was unpopular. So he's leaving them in confidence, not confidence in the leadership of them as men, because we'll see in a moment what Paul says is that human leadership will fail. But he's confident in the ministry of the word of God, which he has left behind. He is a good example for every elder. It is never the goal to create a church that is dependent on the pastor. It is every elder's goal to lead the church to a keen understanding of their dependence on their Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've seen the example of Paul and the expectations that he has. Now he turns to what his expectations of the Ephesian elders are. In verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Paul says, take heed to yourselves. Elders must examine their own lives to ensure they are setting an example worth following. An elder is not called to merely speak the truth. He is called to live the truth. As 
1 Peter 5 says he's to be an example to the flock. So a pastor needs to constantly examine their own life. But Paul is saying more than that in verse 28. Listen, take heed unto yourselves, plural. He's not saying just each of you watch yourself. If he was, they could do that on their own. Paul's commanding a group activity. Elders are to watch over one another. Pastors need oversight. That's one of the many reasons why multiple elders is important. Or said another way, whether our churches have embraced this over the centuries is irrelevant. The Bible itself proves that pastors need pastored. A pastor needs the very things that the congregation has need of. Sometimes they need to love and care and, and to be watched over. Sometimes they need corrected. Sometimes they need encouraged. The counselor needs to be counseled. The leader needs to be led. The preacher needs to be preached to. And without that kind of oversight, then problematic life issues will snowball and authority problems will remain unchecked and doctrinal errors will get magnified. Not only are elders to watch over one another, they're also to watch over the church. Look at verse 28 again. Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul is about to call this flock the church of God. So just like elders are to maintain oversight over one another, elders are to maintain oversight over the church. I said, if you are of the opinion that your personal life is nobody else's business, you are of the wrong opinion, according to the Apostle Paul. When we covenant together as members of the Lord's church, there is mutual accountability expected within the assembly. And as Paul calls this church a flock, he surely has in mind that sheep tend to wander. A pastor's job is to remember that the word pastor literally means shepherd. There's guidance. There's, there's shepherding that needs to be done. In fact, that's exactly what the word feed means in verse 28. That word is the Greek word poimen, which means shepherd. Shepherd, the church of God. That doesn't mean that a pastor owns the flock. Look how carefully Paul explains in verse 28 that all three persons of the Godhead have a vested interest in the church. It is the church of God, he says. And because it's God's church, the Holy Spirit has appointed overseers, right? No pastor ought to assume that position except that both they and the church are convinced that the Holy Spirit has placed them there. And he also notes this church of God with Holy Spirit appointed overseers was purchased, quote, with his own blood. The church is the possession of Jesus Christ because Jesus, God made flesh and blood, shed that blood as the price to redeem those people. As soon as any pastor assumes a sense of ownership over an assembly, that pastor has theologically and practically abandoned this essential truth. 
It is God's church. It is the Holy Spirit's calling. It is bought with the blood of Jesus. And no elder serving in a church has ever paid that price. A church's elders are themselves bought. They should never presume the position of being the buyer. Jesus is God in the flesh. He submitted to become perfectly human, to live righteously, to die sacrificially, to rise victoriously in order to pay the price to purchase the church with his own blood. If you are a disciple of Jesus, then you should be a member of one of God's flocks. Why would you refuse to be part of what Christ has purchased with his own blood? If you remember, young David in the Old Testament was a shepherd who cared for his flock. He, he pictured in Psalm 23 the Lord shepherding him, leading him to rest in green pastures and to, to still waters. But David knew by experience that shepherding meant the shepherd faced the same dangers as the sheep. Lions and wolves and bears would as gladly consume a little shepherd as they would a sheep. And Paul knows that too. Look at verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. The reason Paul is calling these elders to watch over each other and to watch over the church is that he knows the wolves are waiting. He says, I, I know this. Just picture a shepherd who loves and tends over his little flock of sheep. And although he has to leave them out there in the wilderness, he already knows that the wolves are out there lurking in the tree line. They're ready to pounce. And so that shepherd would tell to his friends, his, his fellow shepherds, he would give them a stern warning Watch over them. The, the wolves are creeping around. I've seen them. They're, they're fierce. They're savage. They're not going to show mercy. I know that they're coming. Watch over them. Those wolves aren't always going to display their motives either. The Lord Jesus uses this same imagery in Matthew seven fifteen when he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravening wolves false teaching is as much a threat to your spiritual health as a savage wolf is a threat to a little lamb's physical health the difference is that at least a wolf that's out there like drooling through its barred teeth is an obvious threat but a false teacher shows up as a sheep Wearing sheep's clothes, hiding his true motives. The calling of a pastor, a shepherd, is to watch over the church because there are those outside who would gladly enter in looking like sheep but intent on destroying the assembly with false teaching. Unfortunately, even more threatening dangers from the uh, inside exist. Right? There are dangers outside of wolves that would come in, and there are dangers inside of those who are already within the assembly. Look at verses 30 and 31. Also of your own selves 
shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul seems heartbroken over this truth that some of the very elders who have just walked days to get to him will soon be clinging to his clothes and and accompanying him onto the ship in tears, and yet they will prove ultimately faithless. Either because they're unwilling or unable to shepherd the flock, they will themselves become the very ferocious wolves that are attempting to scatter the Lord's sheep. This isn't just theoretical, like, hey, I'm worried this might happen. This is is actual. He's certain of it. And later, as Timothy is ministering in Ephesus, Paul writes to him, and he mentions in 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who've made a shipwreck of faith, promoting false teaching. And in his second letter, he warns Timothy to beware particularly of Alexander, who did me much evil. And he brings up Hymenaeus again. And this time, Hymenaeus is joined by a man named Philetus, who together, Paul says, they're teaching eats like a canker, it spreads like gangrene. Listen, recognizing a man as elder doesn't come with a guarantee. It's very likely, I think it's very likely that those men Paul later mentions, Hymenius and Alexander, are actually right here in this group in Acts 20, listening to the message and even entering the ship, giving Paul a tearful hug goodbye. The unfortunate reality of ministry is over the years, some of the very men who you work with and shed tears prove faithless and are more than happy to scatter the flock. The only guarantee that we have in this fallen world is that men will fail. We will disappoint you. History is unfortunately overflowing with abundant examples of Pastors turn predator, which is exactly what Paul's warning about here. So how can you look past the sheep's clothing and see what's really in the heart of an elder? Well, listen, verse 32. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel, yet you yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Mere men are not competent for the calling of church leadership. But the word of God is more than sufficient. It can build up these elders, Paul says. It can build up the church. It's the message of God's grace through Jesus Christ that's able, he says, to give you an inheritance with all the saints, all the sanctified. But it's the heart of a pastor, of an elder. It's the the heart of a, a man that determines how that word is used. So Paul goes on to show himself as an example again. He has a giving heart. He worked hard and avoided greed. He practiced generosity. He says in verse 33, he hasn't coveted silver or gold or clothes. That's not his heart's desire. That's not what motivates him. 
What is his heart's desire? Well, in verse 35, it's to show all things, to support the weak. He wants to give and not get. Paul is modeling the ideals of Jesus, the chief shepherd who came to serve and to seek and to save those sheep which were lost. He also taught that idea when he says in verse 35 that the Lord Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive, which one of the interesting things to me is you can search the Gospels in vain for that quote from Jesus. It is apparently handed down through oral tradition, and this is the only place that we have it. With all the dangers facing this church at Ephesus, how could Paul have any peace leaving them knowing what they're about to experience? Well, the answer is in verse 20. He's taught. He hasn't held back any of the word to them that was profitable. In verse 27, he's declared openly all the counsel of God. In verse 32, he commends them to God and the word of his grace. In verse 35, remember the words of Jesus. The word of God, the whole counsel of God, the words of Jesus who shed his blood for the church, that is what is sufficient for the assembly. The end result of that kind of ministry in the word can be seen in the final verses of this chapter. You know these men have a love for the Apostle Paul as they kneel and they, they pray together, they embrace, they, they cry, they follow him onto the ship grieving that they won't see him again. But they will hear from him again. You remember, this is all an introduction to Ephesians, right? It's hard to say after this how many years pass. A good estimate is probably six or seven years later. After some of these elders have failed, after wolves have entered into the assembly, after they consider that stabilizing influence of the Apostle Paul having been completely lost to them, a familiar face is going to walk into church service one morning. And it's not going to be the Apostle Paul. We'll learn later. It's a man named Tychicus who was apparently from this area and had left and gone with Paul on his journeys that man shows up again, and he is carrying a scroll. And it's hard to imagine how joyful they were as they listen as he opens that scroll and he begins to read. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, now I'm looking forward to actually getting into Ephesians next time. Thanks for your time.